From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Molly Marcello. It's Friday, February 3rd. The town of Castle Valley is looking to update its water monitoring system in anticipation of a potential new tourism development. As KZMU's Emily Arnson reports, town council members are hoping to conduct an aquifer study and install a partial flume system as part of a larger plan to measure whether their water supply can accommodate more people. In November, Utah's Land Trust Administration, SITLA, accepted a bid from the luxury camping company Under Canvas to lease a parcel of land in Castle Valley. Under Canvas already operates one location just north of Moab and plans to open a second location in San Juan County in March. Castle Valley Council member Bob O'Brien is concerned that a new development could strain the town's water source. The town of Castle Valley has only 319 permanent residents, so even small developments are a big deal in Castle Valley in terms of our water. Many people in our valley don't have high-quality water. If you kind of live in what we call maybe the center of the valley, there's an underground flow of water that comes down from the LaSalle's, and it's pretty good quality. If you live toward Porcupine Rim, uh, that's on the west side of the valley, then you may have very bad water. By bad water, he means salty water. When enough fresh water comes down from the LaSalle's, the heavier salt and mineral water sinks to the bottom of the aquifer. But when the freshwater flow is low, that salty water gets pulled up from the wells, even if there's some freshwater present. So our worry is that if there's any development above us, which there actually may be because there's an under canvas project that may go up above us. We want to make sure there's not a lot of development that would lessen the water pressure because they'd use water that keeps those salts at bay. The town is looking to collaborate with the Utah Division of Water Resources to evaluate how often the aquifer is replenished. These studies can be done by tracking water isotopes, which are basically water fingerprints. Scientists can follow these fingerprints to determine how often new water comes into the aquifer. Based on this information, scientists can decide if that aquifer is a sustainable water source. The isotope study is probably our top priority right now. And again, that's something that a UDWRI says is necessary before they can evaluate whether we need to kind of cease further appropriations for water or begin to think that we might be mining our aquifer. The town also hopes to install a partial flume system to measure how much water flows in and out of the valley. Right now, water flow in Castle Valley is measured at creeks and streams where the variations in the width and depth of the current makes it hard to tell exactly how much water is moving. A partial flume puts all of the water in an area that you know if you have a certain depth how much water is actually passing through that cement gauge. For KZMU in Moab, I'm Emily Ernson. Tribal leaders from the eight federally recognized tribes in Utah gathered at a news conference at the state capitol this week. They called on state lawmakers to pass HB 40. That's Utah's version of the Indian Child Welfare Act, called ICWA for short. Alex Gonzalez with our partners at the Public News Service reports. Advocates say the bill would implement provisions to protect Native American children from unnecessary removal from their families and tribes. 
Eugenia Charles Newton with the Navajo Nation Council says recent research has shown that systematic bias within the child welfare system means Native families are four times more likely to have their children removed and placed into foster care compared to their counterparts. She says she hopes state lawmakers value family unity when looking at the bill. Although progress has been made as a result of ICWA, out-of-home placement still occurs more frequent for Native American children than it does for the general population. Charles Newton says despite advancements, protections are still needed. Supporters of the bill say its protections are warranted as the federally recognized Indian Child Welfare Act faces a Supreme Court challenge. Opponents of the law say it is wrongly based on race and prevents the state from considering a child's best interest. HB 40 is sponsored by Representative Christine Watkins and Senator Dave Hinkins, who are seeking to codify ICWA provisions into state law, meaning Utah could join a list of states passing protections for Native children. Chairman of the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe, Manuel Hart, says as the oldest living residents of the state of Utah, HB 40 reaffirms inherent rights for tribal nations and ensures culture and traditions are passed on to younger generations. Let us give them their right to exercise their inherent right to learn their language, their culture, and their traditions. Let us protect them through ICWA, House Bill 40. Representative Watkins says the bill is making its way through the state house and says they've run into a bit of a hiccup, but are trying to educate committee members to garner more support for the bill so it can make its way to the state Senate. I'm Alex Gonzalez reporting. Remote Hinsdale County in Colorado is not a ski destination like Aspen or Telluride. Lake City is the county's only incorporated town, and it touts its hill as what skiing was like before the rise of mega ski resorts. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, KVNF's Laura Palmasano reports from opening day. Well, our slogan is skiing the way it used to be. That's Henry Woods. He coaches the local ski team and volunteers at the Lake City Ski Hill. Ski Hill is home to the oldest operating ski lift in Colorado. I skied on it when I was a little kid in Arapahoe Basin, and then it was moved here in 1966. Woods describes the single Poma lift. Well, it's a surface lift, meaning it pulls you on the ground, you're not up in the air, and it's a not a detachable lift. The the carriers are affixed on the cable. It pulls you up and you got to get off on your own. Skiers place a disc seat attached to a pole between their legs and then they're pulled up the ski hill. Oh, the lift. (laughs) The disc lift. Well, it's better than a rope tow. So (laughs) that's Rebecca Kaminsky, a local mother of five. She's at the ski hill with her kids on this sunny Saturday in mid-January. It is something that you will not experience probably anywhere else. It's getting to go up on a disc lift. It's like riding an antique. The Lake City Ski Hill has 14 skiable acres. It's tiny compared to other ski destinations in Colorado like Vail or Keystone that offer several thousand. Kaminsky likes this fact. Well, we don't have as many runs as they do, but it's got that small town feel, so it's very convenient to come here and to bring your family here. It's a great place for beginners to learn. She also enjoys the variety it offers. 
there are some challenging runs. For my kids that want a little bit more of a challenge, they can actually go to a different part and ski those trails as opposed to there's some super easy trails. Littleton resident Jeb Brago is at the ski hill on opening day with his wife and daughter. We're trying our little one out in some skis, trying to get her a little bit better at this. So she's two and a half, so trying to get her in some uh, turns, work on everything. This is his first time visiting Lake City. We love it. It's uh, so kind of low-key, and it's terrific for, for her first time and just us getting back into it after years of COVID. This is her first time skiing? Second time, yeah. We tried Uray once, too. The town of Lake City owns and operates the ski hill. Braco and his wife are taking their toddler to different municipally owned ski hills in Colorado. We're trying to hit all the cheaper ones. <laughs> well, she's not very good. Aside from Lake City and Uray, there are also city-run ski hills in Durango, Gunnison, Silverton, and Steamboat Springs. A single-day adult lift pass at these ski hills ranges from $16 to $43. It can cost hundreds of dollars to ski at a large resort. Lake City Community School children get a free season pass for the ski hill through the school district. Ten-year-old Wyatt Lopper is using his today. Yeah, I'm kind of nervous because it's my first time skiing and I don't know what's ahead. Coach Wood says another charming aspect of the ski hill is the... Junky old warming house. The tiny building looks like a shed. Inside is where you get your gear for skiing or snowboarding. Lake City native Danny File is manning the counter here today. He works for the town's recreation department. One day we would love to purchase a new warming hut and one that has more space, one that has better heating, and one that has better insulation. We're saving up to do it, but it might be some time. We love this little warming hut. It has a lot of character, has a lot of history, but we do need to replace it. Back outside, Coach Woods offers some pointers to a youth ski team member. Put your skis together in between the turns. For over 40 years, Woods has volunteered as the local ski coach. Skiing has helped me so much in my life. When I was a kid, it helped me to have more self-esteem and be active and be in shape. I like the idea of imparting that to other kids. He hopes the ski hill remains a treasured part of the community for generations to come. Reporting from Lake City, I'm Laura Palmasano. That story from KVNF was shared with us via Rocky Mountain Community Radio, a network of public media stations in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah, and New Mexico, including KZMU. And now the weekly newsreel, where we speak with reporters about their latest stories of the Moab area. Grand County and Moab City will not be receiving any disaster relief money from the Federal Emergency Management Agency. As Sophia Fisher from the Times Independent explains, they'll have to look elsewhere to cover infrastructure repairs from an August flood. Moab City and Grand County were denied a federal FEMA flood relief funds. Sorry, there's a lot of Fs. Uh, from a January, a decision made January 18th. Unfortunately, the total damages to public infrastructure across the city, the county, and actually Wayne County as well was also included, uh, came in $200,000 short of the $5.4 million threshold. Okay, so what does that mean? The damages in total were just shy or $200,000 shy of meeting a threshold to get flood assistance from FEMA. 
Exactly. It doesn't seem like this, you know, lack of assistance, while of course disappointing, it doesn't seem like it'll preclude any of the necessary um, improvements and work that need to happen primarily in downtown Moab. It does, however, look like the city is going to be leaning pretty heavily on its insurance provider to cover some of those costs. So they're relying on insurance. Are they relying on any other funding to mitigate the damages from the flooding? And not that I've heard of from uh, city engineer Chuck Williams. It sounds like it is primarily the insurance provider and they're actually still in talks to figure out exactly what they are or are not going to cover. Mm -hmm. So it's certainly still ongoing. I did talk to Chuck Williams about the work downtown, the two waterline replacements that are happening on 400 East and 100 West. Williams said they're both going really well. The one on 100 West should be up and running within the next week or so. And the one on 400 East should follow soon as well. Um, After those waterlines are complete, the next step is going to be bolstering the foundations of some downtown bridges that were undermined by the flood. You know, there were some temporary improvements made. So the bridges are safe now, but installing something that's a little more permanent. And then after that bridge work is done, William said he's going to turn to the parkway, parts of which are, of course, still closed um, as some of the concrete was undermined or buckled. You know, there were fences that were ripped down and plenty of debris and sand covering certain sections of the parkway. So Williams doesn't have a date on when work on the parkway will commence, but he said he hopes it's, quote, in the not too distant future. Where do you want to take us next, Sophia, in the Times Independent? Certainly um, a jailer or rather now former jailer at the Grand County Jail resigned rather than being terminated after either taking a video or photographs of a mentally ill inmate who was performing a lewd act. He then shared the uh, video or the images with a co-worker. Um, this was 26-year-old Ron Dolphin, and, and after being charged with a felony, uh, he, he actually resigned his position. Okay, and this, um, according to the Times Independent, this happened in October. This came to light because Grand County Sheriff's Office made a press release about this, and this was one of the promises of the Sheriff's Office to be more transparent about um, their staff and also what they're doing. Um, Anything else to say about this particular case? It sounds like he's being charged. Yes, the charge is currently a felony and he will be appearing in the 7th Judicial District Court in Moab on February 21st. Moving on, there's a a great headline in the Times Independent about um, tadpole shrimp. It says, goodbye, delicate arch. Hello, tadpole shrimp. What is happening? Certainly. I had a lot of fun with the story. Thank you for mentioning it. Uh, There are new tourism ads highlighting Moab's ecology and culture that are being produced by Grand County now with some unorthodox images um, and nuances of the Moab area. So, you know, we're all used to seeing delicate arch and these kind of blue skies, red rocks, (laughs) hiking images. But actually, one of the ads that's been performed really, really well is one that focuses on a tiny little creature inhabiting sandstone potholes, and that is the tadpole shrimp. Okay. All right. Now, tadpole shrimp are are, are fascinating. Certainly. I was lucky enough to speak with local scientist Tim Graham, who studies these shrimp and and other, you know, little microfauna, little creatures that inhabit the potholes. And it's true, Graham said, you know, it's really important not to, certainly not to jump into any potholes or even ride your bike through them or disturb them because they are little teeming miniature ecosystems full of not just shrimp, but little beetles and algae and other insects. Um, There are like uh, toads and frogs that grow up in them and then leave, which I had no idea about. I'm really fascinating. Unfortunately, I've never seen 
any of these shrimp myself in a pothole, but close to half a million people online have now seen this image. Mm. It was this tadpole shrimp image was in a suite of imagery focusing on things like biological soil crust, Moab arts and culture, and the shrimp image specifically performed, um, to quote uh, someone from Love Communications, exponentially higher than those other ads. You talked to scientist um, Tim Graham, as you mentioned. What did he think of um, this the shrimp taking center stage on some of these ads? Yeah, I think it was something of a surprise to him. Um, I have a quote from him saying that he he jokes that he likes to study uncharismatic microfauna. So, you know, the small <laughs> little creatures that a lot of people don't like to think about. But, mm-hmm. you know, clearly uh, a lot of people on the Internet don't necessarily agree with that assessment. And there's some really cool factoids about these shrimp in the story, too. Um, I didn't know this, but their eggs are extremely hardy. They can lose up to 95% of their moisture and sit for months on end in a dry pothole in that in that sediment. So it's also important not to disturb dry potholes. Um, and then the, the shrimp will spring alive and start reproducing within just a couple of days after the pothole receives rain. Um, the eggs can survive up to 50 years or the vacuum of outer space and still produce viable shrimp as well. So some comparisons there with the well-known kind of tardigrades, those little microscopic mm-hmm. creatures that can also survive insane conditions. So, you know, was it interesting to you, too, that um, instead of like mountain biking or UTV riding or climbing, as someone who I know is interested in science, were you kind of excited that the shrimp was uh, being featured in this ad? I think absolutely. Um, And yeah, I spoke with August Granith, who's the head of economic uh, development at Grand County. And yeah, he said the data indicates that people are really used to seeing those kind of classic shots and, and it might not be making the same impact anymore. And these little factoids about like desert treasures is one of the the terms Hmm. they use for this kind of suite of ads. Mm -hmm. Uh, It seems like it's having a bigger impact on potential tourists. Sophia Fisher, reporter at the Times Independent. Subscription info and more stories can be found at moabtimes.com. The Moab Sun News found that just 11% of Native American remains taken from Grand County have been returned. Reporter Allison Harford delved into why. Just a while ago, um, ProPublica came out with this investigation into the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, which was passed in 1990 and was meant to facilitate the return of Native American remains, funerary objects, sacred objects, and objects of cultural patrimony from federally funded museums and federal agencies to the tribes they were stolen from. You know, a lot of these Native American sites and burial grounds were looted. Um, just in American history. And so these objects came into the possession of a lot of museums and institutions around the country. Um, And so this act in 1990 was meant to facilitate that return. And at the time, Congress thought that it would take 10 years to return everything. But now it's been over 30 years later. And this investigation found that half the remains of more than 210,000 Native Americans have yet to be returned across the country. Mm. So in Grand County, data from this national NAGPRA, that's what the act um, is referred to as, um, this national NAGPRA database shows that only 11% of Native American remains that were taken from this area have gone through the NAGPRA process and hmm. have been made available for return. Why is that? Yeah, so that's the question that I really wanted to answer. And so I talked to a local Native NAGPRA consultant, and I also called the local museums around here trying to answer this question. And so 
the issues really stem from kind of two things. So first is a huge lack of funding. So since 1994, Congress has allocated funds for repatriation and consultation grants, but the grant amounts are far from enough. Um, in 2022, Congress awarded just over $2 million to 20 museums and 10 tribes across the country. So that's the only federal money that's available to institutions. And the grants are really highly competitive, and so grants are really only awarded to institutions and tribes that have hired professional grant writers. Mm. And so this process is really costly because that's the only money available for institutions um, for the cost of creating an inventory and a catalog of their collections, which takes ages, and Mm. museum staff have to go through every single object and figure out what it is and who it belongs to. And then they have to consult with tribes and This money is the only available money for tribes for the burden of claiming these objects and reburying these individuals that should have never been taken in the first place. Mm. And so talking with this consultant, he said that, and he's Native, and he said it feels distinctly unfair that Native Americans have to shoulder the responsibility to reclaim and rebury these individuals that were stolen, and there's never fair compensation for doing so. Mm. So this is a really expensive process. Nobody is paid correctly. And then the other issue is this big lack of data upkeep. The data that I was looking at is in the National NAGPRA database, which is overseen by the Department of the Interior and on a smaller scale by the National Park Service. But there's really only a couple people who look into and kind of keep this database up to date. So for example, the Utah State University Museum of Anthropology has been documenting an inventory of its Keller collection for two years now, but national data says that the museum has no items inventoried. So the database will only show that inventory process once it's fully completed and once somebody at the database has actually updated it. So there's this big lack of data upkeep, and that also means that there's a lack of enforcement. So at the Department of Interior, there's only one full-time staff position dedicated to investigating institutions that have lacked compliance with this law. So when institutions are found to have violated the law, they face a fine. But since 1990, the Department of the Interior has collected only about $59,000 in fines from just 20 institutions, despite over half of these remains of Native Americans having yet to be returned in the process of NAGPRA. It strikes me that underscoring this as you did is the funding aspect. This law was created in 1990, but it wasn't adequately funded ever. Right, exactly. So that's what a lot of people who I talked to said was the really big issue here. So um, going back to USU, for example, who has been working on this process to create an inventory of its color collection, they only were able to get going on that process in 2020 when they were awarded grants, despite NAGPRO being in place since 1990. And the expectation when the act was passed was that museums would immediately start doing this inventory process. But it takes a really long time. Mm -hmm. And so USU, the Museum of Anthropology, dove into in this article written in August what it took just to inventory one item. It was this undergrad student who for class 
got assigned an item, and this wasn't even part of the inventory process for NAGPRA. It was just part of her classwork, and it turned out to be this pouch. And so she went through this whole process of x-raying the pouch and working with all these department heads to figure out what it was, and she found that there was a shell inside of it, which means that it could possibly fall under NAGPRA as an object of cultural patrimony. But that took forever, and it was just like kind of this random process of this student who happened to find this item. And so a lot of times at museums and institutions across the country, these collections are just put away for storage and then almost forgotten about. So I talked to Molly Cannon, who is an assistant professor at USU and is the director and curator of the Museum of Anthropology, and she said that it's really up to museum professionals to prioritize the work, Hmm. um, which the USU Museum of anthropology is now doing and that process to complete an inventory of its collection is nearly finished but it took about two years and they had five people working on it and the grants they were awarded it was like over a hundred thousand dollars um but that's what it costs to create this inventory and so Mm. once the inventory is completed they'll go into the next step of nagpro which is consultation which is another expense so like Mm -hmm. we just talked about that's when museums and institutions will reach out to tribes and say look we have these items and we need to figure out what they are and who they belong to. So Mm -hmm. a lot of the time, ideally, this consultation would um, be paid, like institutions would be able to pay tribal representatives for their time and for the burden of coming and looking at these objects, Um, but sometimes they can't. And so that's another huge issue with NAGPRA. But as far as USU goes, Cannon said that this collection that they're inventorying right now comes from a part of Utah where their museum hasn't worked with tribes from the region very much. And Mm. it's a lot of it comes from Southwest Utah. So it'll be like any relationship, like it'll take time to build it and everyone will have to work together to get this work completed. But that original timeline of 10 years is completely unrealistic, Mm. which is what the NAGPRA consultant said to me, um, especially with that huge lack of funding. 10 years was an expectation or was it a demand? Yeah, it was an expectation. It's really hard to put demands on NAGPRA because of this huge lack of enforcement. Mm-hmm. So there's been a recent proposed ruling to the act made in October of 2022 that hasn't passed yet. But in the new ruling, there would be super clear timelines put into place. So museums would have two years to compile this itemized list of NAGPRA items um, in a new collection and have two years to initiate consultation and consult with requesting parties. And then if a tribe made a repatriation request, museums would have 30 days to respond and 90 days after that to repatriate. But that timeline too is extremely laughable. I mean, we just saw that at USU, it took five people two years to inventory Mm. this Keller collection. And that's not even a really big museum. And so there's really not a lot that museums and institutions can do until there is more funding available. Mm. But also on the flip side, it really comes down to museums prioritizing this work. Neither of the two museums in Moab, which are the Moab Museum and the Moab Museum of Film and Western Heritage, um, neither of them reported having any native remains or funerary objects in their possession. 
In May, the Film and Western Heritage Museum submitted a formal summary to the National NAGPRA database, meaning it had identified items in its collection that were subject to this law and were deemed culturally affiliated with eight tribes. So that means that those items are potentially available for repatriation. But the data trail ends after formal summaries are made because the national database really wants to protect like where these items end up mm-hmm. so that people can't go and try to find them. Mm-hmm. Um, then the Moab Museum also completes consultation with tribal representatives for every object it puts on display, even objects not specifically protected by NAGPRA, mm-hmm. which is something that they have really prioritized. So I talked to Tara Barish, who's the museum's curatorial and collections manager, and she said that the Moab Museum made this decision to prioritize the consultation process because First of all, they were able to, like they were already remodeling and rebranding. And Tara, when she was hired, made this a huge priority of hers. And so she said she's really hoping that the MOA Museum will be able to inspire gradual change in how often people consult. And that was something, too, that the native NAGPRA consultant I talked to said, too, is that the most important part of this process is just figuring out how to display items and Um, what the best course of action is, especially when items were looted from sites a really long time ago and have been sitting in museum collections for over 100 years, Mm. which is what a lot of these NAGPRA objects have been. During your reporting, you know, did you find out, in addition to finding out why this is so difficult um, to repatriate these items, did you find out anything related to the importance of doing so? Yeah, I mean, the importance is just that it's so unfair that this happened in the first place. Mm. And I think the real importance is kind of the spiritual aspect of it. Um, So this Native consultant who I talked to said that people were never meant to be just stored in a museum basement like Mm. it's really important that the remains of native people get returned back to where they came from and so I think it's just kind of this very personal very spiritual aspect of it Allison Harford reporter at the Moab Sun News subscription info and more stories can be found at moabsunnews.com And that's the Weekly Newsreel, where we speak with reporters about their latest stories on the Moab area. You can find links to the pieces that were mentioned today in the show notes of the news on our website, kzmu.org, or the KZMU News Podcast. As always, thanks for tuning in and supporting KZMU Community Powered Radio.